Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Using Ryegrass to Break Up Japan Soils, is brought to you by Freightstar. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Freightstar for sponsoring today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. Freightstar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at Freightstar.com. That's F-R, numeral eight, S-T-A-R.com. Ralph Upton Jr. of Springerton, Illinois, says his family's been planting cover crops all of his life, even though that wasn't necessarily the terminology used. But over time, they've changed the way they use cover crops and understand the role they play in their no-till system much better. In fall of 2019, strip-till farmer managing editor Jack Zemlicka visited Ralph and captured a conversation between him and ag researcher John Pike. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, we'll share their exchange, which delves into research Upton had done on his farm after a 1983 drought revealed that he had a plow pan layer about six inches deep in his soil profile that was preventing his crops from getting needed moisture. Listen in as Upton and Pike talk about what they learned from that early research, including using ryegrass to break up a Japan soil, how they've been able to fine-tune nutrient management plans to increase profitability, nitrate loss after soybeans, and much more. I've done cover crop, really they didn't call them cover crop, but I've done cover crop my whole life. Uh, back then it was wheat and red clover or sweet clover and double crop, I mean, stubble hay and, and, and that type of stuff. But the ground around here, about 10 days and you burn up. So what do you do? Well, University of Illinois, there's not anything you can do because we got a plow pan, more of that <coughs> called frat pan or a silt rare. So one year I had that field back here and it went corn and you could walk the corn field and there'd be area that would make 125 and there'd be area that make 30. Well, why? So we went in with a mower, but hard and we mowed the corn down to where we get in there with bath hole and we done a train for probably 100 feet wrong across the field to see if we could tell why we had corn that would make 125. Well, when we done that, we had that white rare dip. I mean, dip right, you took a paint brush and dip painted it. And the poor corn, the root couldn't begin to penetrate that. And over here, for probably maybe old home plate for some unknown reason, them root were going down and the corn would, you know, not a bit airy, but yet enough you could tell a difference. So my primary were here, seed bed were here, then at, I don't know where then it was, there were probably five, you know, farm advisor, you know, but I know my farm advisor told me that there's nothing you could do to break, you know, that did it. University of Illinois had took and ripped the ground and put straw in and different thing, and in a few years it did go back together. So I got a SIR grant. And the whole thing unique about that, you didn't put a plan together and thinking that you, you know, in five years, we're gonna be able to prove that. What we, we had no plan because we didn't know what we'd done. So I got a SIR grant to study cover crop on no-till ground and never till it. 
And, and I went to Myron, Tennessee to see cover crop and no-till. That was a big no-till play. And uh, they had cover crop or clover and stuff, but they would rotate it. And then they might tear that ground up. But no work, I find that no-till and continued cover crop. So we started riding. Harry Bed, that was our cover crop. And maybe and we done Sunhampton, Sweet Clover and and different things. And then I don't remember the date, but in the early ninety the Ryegrat Association came to Southern Illinois wanting people to grow ryegrat for a cover crop. And I was one of the farmer there were twenty about twenty or twenty two farmers that done it. And I think there were only one or two that's kept going. It would get away from them or, or for some reason. So uh, anyway, I kept going. And I was always told if a plant was four inches tall, the root would be down four inches. That kind of why we done sweet crow root, because sweet crow would get tall, we're hoping we get a root down four or five foot. So one winter, uh, one of the ryegrass people, they'd been to Ruryville, and, and they came through at the Ruryville Farm Show and we were sitting over at my old shed and, and get right, we're talking. And, uh, well, you know, what about your ryegrass? Well, it about that tall. And But then we decided we get a shovel and we go out in the field and did. And it was right in February. So we go out and, you know, we got root two foot deep. So I called Mike Prummer and I said, Mike, we got root down two foot deep. So he come up and then it was around April the 9th, the first time we done a real digging. And how we done it, we take a poke hole digger and do that. And uh, and we found, we got several different type of soil on that farm. And one type of soil, we had ryegrass four inches tall and roots 72 inches deep. And then and then we went to the scene on our frat pan ground. We had root right three foot deep in soil. We didn't know what going on. So I said, so we knew what we dug root in April. And then I was down at some frame with Mike. We went to that field. He was down there and I down there. And we riding the butt over to the... I said, Mike, what do you think about going out in the cornfield and seeing how deep the corn root was? So he came up in August and we dug down. And of course he, had, he knew how deep our corn root was that deep because they were following the old root. So then, uh, you know, it did kind of start multiplying for that. And then the Oregon ryegrass people start standing, right, maybe 20 different variety of ryegrass. And we found out only four of them would, might, probably only four of them would get through the winter. And then they got to kind of going after the root. And then might and me, I mean, in the fall, we always would have uh, ryegrass prod. We were starting December and January every month. We finally made a probe because done it with a poke hole digger. Not, I mean that did that did quite a bit of work. And it and it don't give you a real good soil probe, man. What it show you in a core, it did. You know that exactly how what going on. So we might probe 50 or 50 probe. And because we had, you know, free reputation or different cover crop, and so that kind of that kind of where ryegrass got started, and and we got some real good. Mike called me uh, in probably June one year, and we had a field day. 
I don't know if we had one that frame, but we had different, you know, different times people would come, we did pit, you know, and Mike called me and he said, we need to have a field day in August. And I said, what in the world can we do in August to have a field day? So I went to walk in my cornfield back here, you know, because what been so amazing about the ryegrass and stuff, if this were a 100 acre field, if you do a sample here and you root two foot deep, anywhere I ever went, they'd be two foot deep. You know, I figured it'd be a hit and a mitt, you know. But that summer, I 80 acre of corn, well, more than that, I went walking and shovel, went to digging, you know, and shoot far we had root. So what we done for the field day, I did take a butt hole and go into the field and mow it down and go in there with a bite hole and dig a tree. And, uh, and then we take water and high prep, I mean, AO3 or AO4 nozzle and it front the wall down. And have you seen that one pit with that, uh, that came from here. Okay. And uh, then when, for the Oregon grad people came, we had a pit back here that, I mean, in August, you can't, you can't take a knife and shove into the wall. It did. And we had root down four or five feet deep. And my said, I know I'm right on my soul type. They said, I want to have a soul signer to come. And he had a boy from Benton come up. And uh, when he seen it, he did. He really put in there got mad because he said, there's no way are you supposed to do that. But, you know, he said that a fried pan soil. But so we had the field day. But uh, another really amazing thing uh, would be in 2012, where we grow cover crop and ryegrass, it was real dry. We, we drew three feet of mortar out of the soil. And the root would be down five and a half foot and, and sell in mortar. Well, I think one of the one of the interesting things, though, and the reason why I always liked coming up here with Mike and I really enjoy working with Junior is the fact that when when you go to the no-till conference now or any any meeting that's involved with cover crops or no-till and soil health is the is the big word uh, these days. At that point. There really wasn't any any conversation about that. We were putting some type of, or a combination of commercial inputs on the in the soil or onto the plant, and just observing the plant growth and trying to modify a production system to make things better. Then, but with some of the original work that that Junior and, and Mike Plummer did on this farm, they were some of the first pioneers to really look underneath the the soil surface to find out what was going on in the soil and how do we make improvements to the soil to improve rooting depth and water management. And that, that was always a big thing that, that Mike stressed was, was water management. And it's a matter of, you know, not only dealing with excess moisture, but how do we get through the summer in our shallow high clay soils that don't have good water holding capacity, well, you can't remedy that with tillage or with any type of a fertilizer input. There has to be some attention given to the, to the soil management it, itself. And with the, with the annual ryegrass and the different variety evaluations that they, they did here, that sort of laid a foundation for a lot of the things that are pretty common conversations in these these circles now 
but uh, you know, to be able to continue to work on on this farm and to have access to something like that as a, as a researcher, especially because a lot of uh, the people when I worked in the university, we did intensive research on a research farm, and when we would incorporate cover crops or a new tillage system, we were just looking at that as in, in a trend in a one or two or three year transition from whatever the conventional practices were then, where when we look at things now, whether it's our cover crop project or to go and have a field day and dig a soil pit, we can go out into these mature soils that have transitioned and they're vastly different within 200 feet of one side, one side of a fence row to the other, and it shows up on the soil survey as the same soil. So to have access to that, you know, it's like working in an encyclopedia every, every day almost. And, you know, so the things that we do here, and I have the ability to compare some of the uh, nitrogen management, for, for example, on some of the soils here that have been long-term no-till cover crop with annual ryegrass and some of these uh, other uh, extensive mixes to, and you know, to compare the management system to other fields and, and uh, different management systems, you know, are, are vastly different. And uh, two years ago, we found that in a nitrogen research plot that we had, and it was field scale here on, on Junior's farm, it was the highest yielding plot in gross yield, and it was the most efficient in nitrogen utilization because we got those high yields with less nitrogen than other fields and we had that in comparison to soil types in the in the local region that were much better than what these soil types are are here so we got to compare that and not not only were we looking at differences in soil types but also in planting date so you know when we're when we're comparing the yields and nitrogen efficiency on superior soils planted 6 weeks earlier then you're looking at, at a lesser quality soil with a six week planting disadvantage later, and you're still coming out on top. That's pretty impressive. And I think that, that gives us something to, to shoot for as we work with other producers who are interested in fine tuning their uh, nutrient management plans and farming plans to, to increase profitability. So it's just a, a, a wonderful resource to have in the farm and in working with Junior here to, to look at these things on a daily basis. So I'd come up every day if I could get away with it. There were another thing, I'm just kind of pointing out some things that kind of been interested. Uh, Dr. Murdoch came up. He read an article on Mike about the deep root. And, and uh, so he got a hold of Mike, wanted to know if he could come up. And uh, we done went to different places, you know, because we went back to our original beginning. The fry pan been broken. He couldn't find it. So we went to some more places. And we really, I'm hoping I'm telling you right, but I don't think we could really proved to him that we had a fry pan. So we go back to where the original beginning was, and we got kind of a driveway down through there, and you'd be an old fence road that never been tilled. And uh, to my knowledge, probably, I mean, I'm 73, and, and I know my ripe time had never been tilled. So we go in that fence row, and we did, we probe it, we a probe, and sure enough, the other fry pan was. Even though it never been tilled and fat Q and stuff been grown on it, it take that, I think Dr. Murdoch, it take ryegrass is the only plant that will penetrate the frat pan. 
We'll get back to Ralph Upton Jr. and John Pike in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Freightstar, for supporting today's episode. Transporting heavy machinery doesn't have to be a hassle. Freightstar makes it easy with an online marketplace that connects you for free with a trusted network of professional brokers and carriers. Find out more at Freightstar.com. That's F-R numeral eight S-T-A-R dot com. Now let's get back to Ralph and John as they talk about mitigating nutrient loss with cover crops. One of the things about Junior, he admittedly has learned through a lot of mistakes over the course of the years and and learned by firing squad in a lot of cases. But, you know, we're able to have these discussions now and we can sort out some of the potential wrong turns for to increase cover crop adoption. Because in my line of work and being a a researcher with nutrient management and, and water quality and being involved in the state nutrient loss reduction plan, of all of the the research that has been conducted with cover crops shows that that's that's clearly the best way to mitigate a lot of our nutrient loss problems that we see in in water quality. So we know that the cover crop is a big part of that answer to solving those problems. And you know, it's one thing to talk about something the, the better improving water quality downstream, but I think that's also an opportunity for farmers to see if we're having issues downstream, well, that decreases my return on investment. So if I can plant a cover crop or manage my soils differently to keep those nutrients in play for another crop, you know, that's that's a critical uh, issue. And uh, a lot of the uh, focus on agriculture and nutrient loss issues ha- has been blamed in a lot of cases in, in the past by the, the thought that we're seeing these problems because of over-fertilization. Well, in many cases, and, and that's not the reason, and it's not sure not the total reason, uh, not that things can't be fine-tuned a little bit better, but you know, in, the, in some of our nitrogen research th- that we're doing statewide, we're finding that the soils, even in Southern Illinois, where we've got less organic matter, uh, and we thought that there's very little mineralization that makes nitrogen available through the, the soil supply, you know, we're, we're seeing uh, in a lot of years pretty decent mineralization of nitrogen. So we've got natural nitrogen that's coming available in our soils. And that, that's driven and, and speculated because the big reason why that would be because of our warmer winters. And we've just got more biological activity going on throughout the course of the of the winter. So if we've got mineralization and then we've got nitrogen uh, that is tied up in the plant residue after harvest, you know, what can we do to keep that in the in play? And uh, some of our research plots were finding that we're actually seeing higher nitrate loss after a soybean crop than a fertilized corn crop. And that has to do with the carbon nitrogen ratio of the soybean biomass and, and residue. So if we've got that field that's in soybeans this year that we're losing nitrogen or there's the potential to lose nitrogen in there and we're going to plant corn there next year well with a cover crop we can capture those nutrients we can keep that in play for the year and it's just a ma- becomes a matter of managing that cover crop better for the corn system and we've found in in some of our work here that we're not seeing the yield penalty for 
planting a little bit later to get our soil conditions right, which are sometimes the challenge for cover crops and implementing those things in a conventional system where we're trying to get the corn planted as early as we can to get it pollinated before we face these lack of moisture issues in the middle of the growing season. So we've kind of got things pointed in the right direction with what we're finding. And, you know, there's no there's no road that's easy, but we're making some inroads through through all of these different uh, projects that we've got going on in Junior's Farm. And a lot of that, you know, the foundation of our that's pointing us in the in the direction that we're going is uh, has been set up here long ago. Back in the late 70 and uh, the 80, there were sustainable ad, and I would in that, and that was really something that kind of, because you in it where a group of guys that they would, you know, doing thing, and that helped on the cover crop and, and some of that part of it. But at one time, I would grow corn, bean, wheat, and butt wheat. And then we would sell the buckwheat, and then we would, but we'd come out in late August and early September, we'd get our cover crop planted and then be set up for corn. And then the corn, we would grow our own rye or whatever, and then did go out with a buggy and dip throw it on the, on the ground. And we done that for a number of years. And then uh, in the 80s, we didn't put much input in. But I think the most amazing thing about the, you were trying to do something with your cover crop to help you where a problem you had, you you weren't planning ahead, and you'd be doing this thing, and then then something happened that people with that the casing came in, and they they seen what was going on. Well, education has been a big part of this, though, because back in the time when when Mike first started working with Junior, then the field days that have been here, it's been increasingly difficult from the traditional university extension and seed company and fertilizer you know standpoint to draw a crowd for a, for a farmer field day and with with the field days that have been held here uh, we're seeing increasing interest and participation in this in a, in a field day that we had last march uh, we, we had almost 200 people here from five states and that was for a march field day on a cold rainy day you know to show that much interest is something and one of the things that i found you know, really rewarding with it too is the follow-up calls that we get from that because you know a lot of the of the sustainable ag groups and things of of the past has tended to be participated in by some of the smaller farmers and that's fine. But what you know, in order to really bend the needle in the way that we need to for some of these bigger issues in agriculture now, we need to reach the bigger acreage farmers and have an interest there and and kind of pave the way for the potential to change some management in that direction. The the attendance that we have at these field days, it's every, everything from small to as big of an operation as you can imagine. And many of the follow-up calls that I get that tend to be from the bigger 5, 10, 15,000 acre farmers that are interested in more information about about this. So I think that we, you know, we plant seeds in more ways than one with the, with these different projects and the activities that go on here. Been aggravated the name no-till ever since because to me no-till is no-till. And people may till the soil real bit in the fall or something, then come in and plant and they call that no-till. And and I didn't don't, you know, now I think maybe they're calling it wrong term no-till, 
the benefit of long term, not just no till. I think no till kind of got a bad name because, well, I no till that. Well, what do you do before that? Well, I work the ground or something, you know, and, mm -hmm. and it, it takes a while for you. So, and, and that another point I wanted to bring up with the, I think a soil probe is very important so people can go out and see what they got. And you start using the cover crop, you'll just start seeing your, maybe you got that muck or topsoil, it'll just start moving down and then and then you can get what they might always call that, uh, well it'd be kind of like a root channel and then you'll start seeing your newt and stuff dip moving down. It wicking or whatever you want to call that. That soil probe is very, very important. I think that that's part of the story though is that they, they've looked deeper than what a normal person would dig with a shovel or farther than a tillage implement would reach and, and we're seeing positive impacts from soil structure and, and just a, a lot of the rooting and everything that goes on with growing a, a, a crop has been improved with these management systems. To bring us back yeah. full circle here, well, a lot of the, the things that we've talked about are in, in the past coming forward to today in the, the cover crop project, the precision planted cover crop project that we've been working on. That was something that was an idea of juniors that came to a group of us and said, well, okay, we know these things will work, but there's different challenges to managing a cover crop system than there is to the straight no-till system to a straight conventional system. So what can we do to make this cover crop system more manageable for the new entry level uh, person for this and that that's where he got involved with with building the planter to where we could precision plant the cover crop plots and we're able to and we've shown that we were able to have a a no-till cover crop system that's very intensive on high residue production but we're managing the corn row in a way to minimize those challenges there and we're getting good stands we're getting good yields and and that you know we're working with traditional equipment now and not something that that is prototype so you know we're looking at uh, how can we use commercially available drills and air seeders and we've got other neighbors around that are sort of adopting these practices and modifying their equipment and using RTK to offset to where they can get these right alignments too to aid in in their uh, production so you know it's still a, a continual building process but it's to share this information with others is just you yeah, know a and, very and, positive thing to the and, agriculture and, and to add to that Back when you go back in the 80s and stuff, you know, there have been time I go to the field. I never will forget I, the field out here I put, I didn't plant it one year and I put, I started planting Harry Bet in July the 4th and then every two weeks up to into August. And my July 4th and up in there, I mean, it got that tall and it had 200 pounds in on it in December. But and it winter killed. But it didn't win the kilt real good. I had plates out there bigger than that tool shed and stuff, that perfect hairy bed. And I'd be planting, I hit that, and you probably wouldn't go 20 feet and you'd be in trouble. So I, I remember my hard hand, he said, you know, I said, we gotta go shed and we gotta do something. And my neighbor, you know, they were planting, you know, they might plant 200 acres or so by the time we got back to the field, but we had to go to the shed and make something work. And getting back to what I know 
I don't want other people to have them nightmare that we had back. And equipment today is so much different than what we had back then. But that was the thinking of that. Yeah, how can we have the advantage of cover crop, but yet get the perfect stand of corn so that if your ground need to make 200 bucks, it make 200 bucks when you got cover crop to go with it. Thanks to Ralph Upton Jr. and John Pike for sharing that fascinating conversation. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Freightstar, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider daily and weekly email updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening. <laughs>